you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. And we, as you know, are just a bunch of blind men looking for that elephant. My blind man today is Peter Merholtz. Peter, hello. Hello. Uh, I, I do have corrective lenses, so uh, that, that seems appropriate. Oh, oh, we'll get there. Don't worry. We'll get into this. But you all may want to know who Peter Merholtz is. Most of you do. But uh, just in case, uh, Peter's one of the founders of Adaptive Path. He is. Uh, he says he's a design organization organization designer. Is that, did I get that right? You got that right. Yeah, well, he's also the co-author of a couple of books, including one that um, lots of people have been reading in the last couple of years that he co-wrote with Kristen Skinner, which is Org Design for Design Orgs. And um, I'm still annoyed with them for not, publishing it with Rosenfeld Media. <laughs> but we, uh, we know, don't have to get into that. Peter, I think, you know, you and I have our, our moments. You, you captured her for, the, uh, for her next book, so. That's you know. right, that's right. Yes, well, we, we, we pretty much own Kristen's soul at this point between curating <laughs> and uh, all the other great things she's doing with the Rosenfeld Media. But let's talk about you, Peter. So, um, uh, you know, um, we certainly go a long way back. And, and in fact, I was thinking before this podcast started that we, we go back to the early days of the Information Architecture Summit and the IA, uh, what was called the Institute, uh, it was the Sillimore Institute for Information Architecture early on. I almost forgot that. And then uh, before we started recording, you, you reminded me that we go back even further yeah, so in 1997, I was I had just moved back to the Bay Area. I would have been 25. Just and a kid. I was I was writing a column for The Net magazine, which was this glossy publication mm-hmm. uh, about the internet. And uh one of the things that I wanted to write about for them was around navigating websites, and I interviewed you and Peter and I think Samantha Bailey. And I interviewed Jacob Nielsen, I believe, and trying to understand, like, is the three-click rule a thing? Or how do you organize a website to, so people can navigate them? And what are the what are the rules? And you're, at the time, I don't even know if the Polar Bear book was out yet, but your web architect column uh, was was out there. So that's how I found you. So, so yes, we're, we're not only are we blind men, we're, we're old men uh, <laughs> still trying to figure out this elephant. Well, actually you're not in remembering something that we were after that moment, you and I were both columnists for internet. Uh, no, no. Uh, what was it? CIO magazine. Oh God, that sounds right. That sounds right. The kind of the back of the book thing where we would judge websites. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. <laughs> and, and I remember, um, I don't know if you had an experience like this. So Peter and I, I uh, was it just you and I, maybe one other person, I don't remember, but we would basically critique websites. This is like 97, 98. And uh, I remember critiquing the ToysRUs.com website. And that was a, just like a disaster of a site. And it was interesting because this kind of plays into some of the stuff that you're working on right now. And we were probably working on back then. But if you could look at that website, it was a commerce site, but it looked like an org chart. It looked like the Toys R Us corporate org chart. And um, I said so. I had the, the, the nerve to write that in CIO magazine in my column. 
And so the column came out and I got a very agitated, somewhat uh, angry, perturbed call from, I think, the CIO of Toys R Us at the time. And he was like, you guys got it wrong. We're fixing it. We're going to get it right. We're changing it. We're hiring, uh, I think it was IBM. I don't know. Someone like that. We're going to fix it. And you'll see. You'll see. And um, I said, oh, you know, hey, listen, you know, you, you, you fix it and I'll come back and look at it. And if it's better, I'll, I'll write an update. And um, I think a month later, uh, he was fired. The whole, <laughs> the whole group was fired. I think they might have become a tab on, on Amazon for a while. There was that period where, where yeah. Every, every major commerce website I touched <laughs> ended up as a tab at Amazon. Yeah, because we're, right, talking about, right. we're talking about borders too. But did you yeah. have any un, uh, uh, similar weirdness? Do you remember? I didn't have that from from writing that column, but I I, um, I mean the org the the organization design aspect of IA has followed me throughout my career. I remember mm -hmm. one of the first articles I wrote on the Adaptive Path website. So this would have been two thousand two or three. Was I think I called it organization in the way, and it was about how companies kept structuring their websites as as in the same way that their organizations were structured. Um, and the thought there being before the web, right? Uh, these different departments could engage with customers directly. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't matter kind of how they were structured, but then the web was this first time that all those departments of a company were shown in a single unified frame. And um, the, and so the customers who used to only engage with this one group now saw all this other stuff and would get confused by, you know, GE, I think was our classic example, right? Most of us think of GE for light bulbs. And then all of a sudden I'm on a website learning about how to buy a airplane, you know, uh, engines. I'm like, wait a moment, this doesn't make sense. And, um, that continues <laughs> when I was the leading design at Groupon, I realized the degree to which the how we literally how we uh kind of how we how we structured our uh geographic taxonomy then led to how we sat in our desks uh for how some people sat in the desks to to kind of get those local deals which then reinforced this taxonomy which was unfortunate because the geographic taxonomy was bad was badly crafted uh you know it was done really quickly in their hyper growth mode but because but they needed something but then they they literally kind of physically instantiated this um immature unsophisticated geographic taxonomy in where people sat and then you couldn't change it because people sat there like it was it, it, and so again and again kind of how we shape how we think about the shape of organizations drives how uh, the experience that we are ultimately delivering people, that's just this constant. And I guess it all gets back uh, to Conway's law. You're, you're probably familiar with Conway's law and people get it wrong and I'm gonna get it wrong, but it basically says that any organization is, is bound to communicate as it is structured uh, uh, um, and you can't get around it. Conway's law is law. And so what often happens is say the, let's say you did, let's say Argus back in the day did that work for Toys R Us. Mm -hmm. Argus was, uh, Toys R Us was right. You guys are right. We're, we're just showing you our org chart 
please come in and fix it for us. So you would go in and you would do your work and you'd give them this brilliant new taxonomy and new website structure and you'd hand it to them and they'd go, this is awesome. And they'd launch it. And within six months to a year, it would go back to the way it was mm -hmm. because organizations have this way of metabolizing whatever is put into them. Or metastasizing might be a better word for it. <laughs> metastasizing, metabolizing whatever's put into them and inevitably returning to that representation. If you don't change the org, you can't simply um, put that put lipstick on that pig. Well, the pig uh, will 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 shine through. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's a reason that Thomas Jefferson said you should you should blow up your organizational taxonomy every generation. <laughs> but <laughs> stay with me here, Peter. Come on. Um, okay, so let's 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 take it forward. So um, you know, you you've obviously had. Uh, like a lot of these same themes uh, that centered on Conway's law. And I, I certainly um, know how that feels as an independent consultant in, in my past, dealing with that as well as at Argus, you, you certainly dealt with it at, at Adaptive Path and then uh, at places like Groupon. And then now take it forward to something you're going to be talking about at the Design at Scale conference, the very first Design at Scale conference, yes, it's an evolution from enterprise experience, but we are having the very first Design at Scale conference virtually June 9th through 11th. And Peter is doing two things there. He's teaching his uh, Design Your Design Organization workshop. And he's also going to give a talk called Design at Scale is People. Talk about that. And, and let's connect those dots to Conway's Law. Sure. So um, the design at scale is people talk is a, a, my attempt at addressing what I saw was missing in the conversation of design at scale. So, so design at scale, I think, is perhaps the single most important subject for design in the last five to 10 years, as we just see over and over these in-house teams scaling. I'm currently supporting a enterprise software company that's going to be growing its team from 15 to 40 by the end of the year. And, and that's, that's, that's just this common story now. Um, and in, in this conversation of design at scale, where the conversation typically begins is design systems. Uh, if you do a search for design at scale, uh, you end up getting a lot of results about design systems. And, um, that makes me uneasy mm -hmm. because a design system is a technology. It is, it is, it is, um, it's, it's, it's a mechanism to enable design at scale, but it's not, it's not design. Design systems typically aren't designed. Uh, design systems are, are these components. Design is a humanistic craft. It's, it's a, it's a mode of inquiry and exploration and you can't systematize that. Um, and when you try to, if you start with design systems before you focused on, on the people, what you end up doing is simply reinforcing this um, uh, design as production mindset that sadly has grown uh, uh, across all these companies as they build out their design teams. So, so design at scale is people is meant to say, hey, before you start um, spending all your time and effort building out a design system, think about the culture that you're creating within your company and make sure that that culture is, is ready for real design. Make sure that you're situating your design team within the company um, to be uh, 
elevated enough, close enough to the executive so that they have the access that they need, that it's um, truly informed by user understanding, that it's not just, you know, um, uh, people's internal beliefs, but but that you're actually engaging with people outside the organization. And so there's there's this cultural component and then there's this people component. Make sure you're um, recruiting and hiring uh, for your design team in a humanistic way. Make sure you put together processes and practices like a, a strong, intelligent career ladder that enables you to scale this design organization uh, in a way that supports your design team as opposed to simply treats them as these interchangeable resources that you're slotting in. So, so that's, that's what the talk is about. Focus on people and then worry about systems and processes once you have the people in place to make the most advantage of it. So let, let me, uh, th th those are great points. I don't disagree, but let me do a little devil's advocacy on the, uh, the, the design system side. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I talking with really smart folks about design systems, folks who, who, uh, are not likely to just sort of say design systems are the end all be all the starting point. Like, and I'm thinking specifically of conversations I've had with Nathan Curtis and Dan Mall. And by the way, Dan is teaching a workshop on design systems that at design at scale. I mean, Dan really gets into sustainability of a design system, which kind of syncs it up with like the fact that it's part of a broader system, it's part of a broader organization, it's part of a culture. Otherwise, it's just going to end up in, uh, you know, uh, in the garbage. Um, and you know, both of them, I think, take a very product-driven approach to design systems. You design them as products for use by a design organization and others as well, people who are design adjacent. Does that get you at least most of the way toward situating design systems in a more humanistic setting? Uh, and often, by the way, it, it helps that because they are things, they are your Trojan horse for scaling uh -huh. design. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think about yeah. that? Uh, I, I agree. And, you know, Nathan and Dan are savvy and sophisticated yeah. in a way that most people who are engaging in design systems are not right most folks when they think of i think most the I think most people when they're considering adopting or building a design system are doing so because it will allow them to go faster and that's all they're really concerned about and it's it's the same reason they they acquire any software any automation right i mean we've been this has been a problem with enterprise software for as long as I've been involved with it, and I'm sure earlier than that, mm -hmm. where you know your your senior leadership invests in software uh, regardless of the humans because they've been sold this line that it will make them faster, more efficient, et cetera. Um, and and then when you try to deploy that software, the people using it keep routing around it because the software is poorly designed, doesn't actually accord with their needs and 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 how they operate, and so. I'm sure the same is happening with design systems. And my, my hope is that people like Dan Mall and Nathan are better able to communicate the context in which a design system lives, um, this humanistic context in which a design system lives, and that they can leverage their, frankly, their thought leadership and their standing to actually make a, a positive impact in, in this world that prior generations of, of attempts at automating productivity have failed. Okay. Well put. I think, you know, the answer is yes. And, 
in, in short, and I, I totally agree. Uh, I'll yes and your yes and, then I'll raise you. Um, the other thing you said uh, I thought was really interesting um, is this push toward, or, or not a push toward, but a need to push toward having clear uh, career ladders mm-hmm. for designers. Yes. And that is been such a, a theme for me to hear in the last two, three months, because I, I think you know that, and, and I think a lot of listeners know that Rosenfeld Media is going to be putting on a new conference with a uh, connected community on civic design. Mm. And we're doing that in December. Uh, and I have actually today, I think I talked to the 50th person who's a designer or design related person in the public sector as part of this like like listening tour I've been on all year. And one of the things that really hit me in some of those conversations is, you know, there are entities like the lab at OPM and, and AT&F and USDS, and I'm just talking about in the U.S. federal context, where, um, you know, they are bringing in people for two-year stints or four-year stints. And there's also like presidential innovation fellows. It's another short-term uh, uh, way to get people with design or other relevant skills into public sector settings and then they spend their two years and they get their feet wet and then they're done. And there is not a landing place necessarily for them. It's not like the government programs have been set up in a way to extend that ladder for design within the public sector. So a lot of times those people want to stay put and they are struggling. Uh, They have to end up back in the private sector whether they want to or not. And all that great new, uh, uh, essentially, uh, ethnography work they've been doing goes to waste because they can't really apply it uh, over years. And if there's a setting that needs years, it's that setting in order for things to change. So what advice might you have for people in that setting who are tasked with building the ladder? I just wonder if, you know, your experience in the private sector, helping extend that ladder, think through that ladder might have some resonance in the public sector. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have friends who've been at ATF, probably fewer at USDS. I know a little bit about it. Uh, there seems to be some policy reason for those limits, at least in the American federal government, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I think is different than if you go overseas to like the UK's GDS. In fact, GDS has published a really good career ladder. It's actually been a resource I've used as I've been looking at uh, huh. uh, building out career ladders for for even some of my private clients uh, just as a resource. They had a really strong content designer, content strategist career ladder that they had published. Um, and and I think, you know, to answer your question with respect to these these termed civic design challenges, I do think a career ladder still can be helpful it kind of depends on, I guess it depends on the relationship or the commitment that the organization is making to the employee. You know, are they simply extracting um, that that person's uh, ability to make stuff for two years and giving nothing back? Or is there a quid pro quo where like, there's an opportunity to grow in that career, even if it's only for two to four years. And I think a, a, a strong career ladder, right? What it could do is, uh, it could allow these civic design organizations to identify essentially slots that people would fit to, to uh, fit it within 
as they're building out a team, right? And so you're uh, uh, bringing on 15 designers. You don't want them all to be exactly the same. You're interested in having some kind of um, breadth of experience as, as part of that. And a career ladder can help you say, you know what? Maybe you'll come in as a mid-level designer, but mm -hmm. we'll help you grow into being a senior designer. And we have this career ladder that we've developed that shows like what it takes for you to grow. And so our commitment back to you in exchange for your public service, essentially, our commitment back to you is it's, it's almost like a, not quite an internship program, but there's a, there's a, a higher touch of mentorship and professional development that we commit to you on. Uh, and that become, that could become actually a, uh, uh, a, a way of attracting talent, right? Folks who feel like maybe they're getting stuck or they're, or they need, you know, they want, they want to serve, but they're afraid that if they spend two to four years in the government, they're going to, plateau instead mm. of grow and mm. they'll just go back to the private sector wherever they were you know uh this opportunity to uh have a commitment that like with this strong career ladder we will help you grow as a member of our civic design organization uh i think could be a um a, a benefit that they offer well i think we should dig a little bit more into what the career ladder could look like. I have a feeling, and I don't know if this is what you'll be covering in your talk at Design and Scale, but there is, you know, some patterns there that can be exploited uh, in, in that work anywhere. So let's talk about that after the break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review with my guest, Peter Merholtz. I want to tell you about our next conference for a moment. It's called Design at Scale. It takes place virtually June 9th through 11th. This is a conference that used to be called Enterprise UX, and then it was called Enterprise Experience, and now it's Design at Scale. We're using that framing because we think it's actually a bit more flexible and welcoming than Enterprise. And let's face it, everyone is dealing with scale problems, uh, not just in large enterprises like the IBMs and the uh, Facebooks of the world, but people in places that you wouldn't think of as enterprises are really dealing with these challenges of scale. What do I mean by design at scale? Well, in many cases, it's uh, the fact that you can't get all the various people around the table any longer that are involved in the design process. Those may be sponsors and funders, they may be designers and researchers, they may be developers, they may be external agencies and partners. Either way, the process is so fragmented and so many people are involved. We've got some problems and some challenges that are hard to, to deal with. And then the users. Well, the users may not be the customers. You may have uh, people using a, a system on behalf of customers. All these challenges of complexity and distribution are all wrapped up in the broader issue of scale. I've been working with a great curation team, uh, Lada Gorlenko, Uday Gajandar, Kid Unger, and we've found some fantastic speakers, both uh, through our call for proposals. We've got uh, something like 160 uh, proposals to choose from. We've already started to, uh, to flesh in the program. We've got speakers that you've heard of, like Peter Merholtz, Kenneth Bowles, Sherry Byrne-Haber, Cornelius Rakiru, Billy Mandel, Surya Vanka, and lots of folks that you probably haven't heard of, but we're really good at finding the best stories uh, from people that you might not know and getting them in a place where they can give a fantastic presentation uh, because we put them to work really prepping and iterating and collaborating as they develop their talks over many months. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, uh, I hope you'll join us. Design at Scale takes place once again, virtually June 9th through 11th. You can learn more about it at designatscaleconf.com.
Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review with my guest, Peter Merholtz. And we were just starting to climb that career ladder. And I was hoping you could kind of uh, paint a picture of what that looks like. If there's any kind of generic ladder, that's a good starting point for understanding it. And, you know, maybe even bringing it back to uh, what you're going to be talking about at the conference, which is scale. Sure. So, um, there is a generic ladder that I tend to refer to. It's one I created. Um, if you go to uh, bit.ly slash levels framework, all one word, uh, it will redirect you to a career ladder that I published for design teams. Uh, it, it was work that I did when I was leading the design team at Snag a Job and then realized it was like the third time I'd had to create a career ladder. And I'm like, I'm just going to put it out in the world because if I keep having to keep reinventing this wheel, mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of other people who need to. And it seems to um, have resonated with uh, the community. I, I get a lot of feedback about it. I see it <laughs> uh, out in the world. Um, the thing I wanted to stress when it comes to design at scale and the importance of a career ladder or levels framework is uh, too often what happens is as design teams grow and they get to 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, and then beyond, and you might have multiple leaders, right? You'll have a single kind of head of design, but, but now that your org is big enough where you've got at least four or five different managers managing groups different, potentially differently, if you don't have a coherent levels framework, what ends up happening is seniority is determined locally within each of those teams. And kind of at the uh, subjective, uh, from the subjective perspective of those leaders, and they might not be aligned. So what one person considered a senior, someone else might consider mid-level. And that can get really confusing if you try to move people from team to team for whatever reason, or you're recruiting and hiring, and two different man, you know, two different managers are engaging with a candidate, and they have two different views of that person. And so, what I've seen is um, a strong career ladder, strong levels framework, serves as this kind of internal API for your design organization. Um, and it makes it easier to recruit and hire because you have a consistent now understanding of what roles you're looking to open, but also it has a way, you have a better way of reviewing talent, right? Because everyone is going to over-level themselves and when in their introduction to you, they're going to be like, yeah, sure, I'm a director, um, uh, when they've maybe only led two people um, uh, in the past. And so you need a means by which, the, by which you can mm -hmm. level them appropriately within your context. Um, but then it's also crucial for that ongoing professional development. After you've hired someone and you want to give them a growth path, the career ladder provides that um, map that they can uh, and path that they can follow and and learn um, how what it means to grow in this organization. How do I build my hard uh, or craft skills? How do I build my interpersonal and professional skills? Well, what kinds of projects am I working on? What's the scope that's expected of me? Um, what's my leadership? Uh, what are the expectations of me leading others? These are all um, built into that framework and, and provide a guide. And so then a manager in their, in their report can use a framework to then plan goal setting year by year. And you're doing it in a way that you know is consistent across your organization. Uh, and so it's not lumpy. If without a without a consistent career ladder, it gets lumpy. Uh, if if we, uh, we, uh, and because different people will do it differently. We 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 abhor lumps. 
on the Rosenfeld <laughs> review, but I will, um, it sounds also like, and maybe you're saying this, um, like the, the, the having that, that organization wide, it's really a system is not just useful for uniform application of that system, but probably the collaboration across silos in terms of developing that system, that ladder, uh, on an organization by organization basis is probably fantastically useful. You're getting managers together who might not ordinarily get together to figure out how they're going to evaluate talent and how they're going to. I think that's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And not just even within a design org, uh, the company I'm supporting right now is doing career ladders for product management, for engineering. And so there's an, uh, a good faith attempt at making sure we're aligned across disciplines. One of the a challenge that many designers face is that they often find themselves under leveled from their peers. Um, and so it can be hard for them to uh, push back, say, mm -hmm. on uh, if they're a, a mid-level designer working with a senior product manager, uh, that senior product manager has the, has a degree of authority now that maybe that mid-level designer lacks. And it's not because they're that's appropriate. It's just kind of how they're, how these different teams have leveled. Right. And if you can kind of ensure consistent leveling across the group for, for the same, um, for the same uh, area of, of, of focus, right? If the designer and a product manager are working on the same things, they should be at the same level, but often that product manager is, is over, is up leveled from that designer. And that puts them in an, uh, uh, an unequal uh, partnership. Well, let me ask you one last question about this. Um, and it's a quick one. Uh, well, at least the answer might be quick. The question won't be. Uh, when you are doing this work in an organization, when you're trying to facilitate a conversation involving many managers in developing a uniform framework for people's career advancement, um, HR, are they your friend or your enemy? Uh, they've been mostly my friend. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the things I've found is the model. So if you go to that bit.ly slash levels framework, the model, the, the, the framework of the career ladder that I have developed for design has proven um, so intriguing to my HR colleagues that they, they ask for permission to use that framework for other functions. Um, because it's, uh, it, it, I actually gave a talk, uh, at the Euro IA conference last year. And then, uh, at the IA conference or IA summit, I don't mm -hmm. know, remember what to call it two or three years ago on applying information architecture to building out this career ladder. And I think, um, HR and organizational psychologists have never thought to apply the principles of information architecture to their work, but their work would be improved if they had. And so that's kind of, that's my Trojan horse right. uh, for, for IA into these other I, contexts. I think I attended that talk at some point, And I think I remember you saying something like you, you had sketched things or you'd done some visual representation of that ladder. And they were just like, oh my God. God, can we do that too? Is that, yeah. can we, uh, you know, so yes. Awesome. That yeah. Peter, I wish we had more time. This is a great conversation and I'm really looking forward to hearing your talk at design at scale. And I know that people love your workshop at this, uh, also associated with the design at scale conference. Uh, the conference itself is virtual. 
June 9th through 11th. I really hope we'll see lots of you there. Uh, and I can promise you it will be a fantastic conference, partly because we got this guy, Peter. <laughs> I'm um, looking forward to it. Before we wrap, Peter, real quickly, I always like to ask uh, for a recommendation, someone or thing you'd like to shine a little sunlight on. Yeah, so um, uh, I also have a podcast that I do with Jesse James Garrett, who you know, and we also have guests. And one of the guests we had who ended up blowing my mind uh, was uh, Vivian Castillo. And at the time she was still with Salesforce, but she's since gone independent mm -hmm. and she runs a, a community and, and um, uh, a kind of a practice called Humanity Centered. And it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a service essentially to the UX community to help people who do UX design really embrace true human centeredness, not not the way we tend to talk about it, which uh, is pretty shallow, but but her background is in counseling and social services. And hmm. so she brings that work uh, in terms of really deeply helping people uh, into our community. And I find it um, hugely uh, uplifting and beneficial. So Fantastic. if I can shine a light on something, that's what I will shine a light on. Thanks for the light, Chinan. And uh, if you all want to learn more about Peter, pick up his book, Org Design for Design Orgs. Go to his website, petermerholtz.com. Follow him on Twitter at Peter Me. Thanks again, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you, Lou. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.